This is a Tuesdays with Merton bonus episode with Sophia Park titled Dancing with Thomas Merton in the Borderland. It was recorded in June 2023 at the 18th General Meeting of the International Thomas Merton Society. Wherever you go, in any convent, seminary library, or retreat house, you will find Merton's books or books about Merton. As such, my intimacy with Merton is not unusual. During my college years as a passionate Sunday school teacher, I received a copy of the Seven Story Mountain as a gift from a Benedictine nun at my home parish in Seoul, South Korea. Handing this book to me, she said, Sophia, you too can become a spiritual writer. At that moment, I was so excited about this idea of becoming a spiritual writer that I did not dare ask any questions because I was afraid she would suggest that I should become a nun. Since those early days, I have found Merton almost everywhere, whether in monasteries in the desert, Albuquerque, or in virtual space like YouTube. Merton is among the most frequently mentioned names in my academic classroom on Christian spirituality. So while he does not know me, I still know him. As an artist, his pencil uh, drawings, photographs, and calligraphies with the sumi ink are all beautiful. His sumi ink calligraphies makes me see him as a Korean monk. As a religious man who struggled within Cistercian institution, yet continued his vocation to be fully human and open to God, a God who is nameless and mystery, he was brave. Whenever I have struggled with my own vow of obedience, God, or with the leaders who were overly authority-driven, Merton's patience with the struggle has given me a profound consolation. His keen spiritual sensitivity to Eastern religions was surprising and pioneering. Interestingly, through Merton, I met Zhangzhu and Laozi, along with Buddhism, which was deeply seated in my heart. Under the dominance of Westernization, I was educated in Western ways, not having a chance to study my own cultural and philosophical traditions. As a child of a third generation Korean Catholic family, I never studied Buddhism or Taoism at home, nor at public or Catholic schools. In my spiritual journey to find my authentic self and true voice, Merton's journey to the East became a landmark for my own inner journey, embracing Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism, and feeling at ease with my indigenous spirituality of shamanism. Merton was a great and charming monk, as well as a prolific writer. There are so many avenues to encounter Merton. Still, this morning, 
I will reflect on his spirituality as an eternal seeker, a dislocated sojourner, while juxtaposing my own spiritual journey as someone who also claims to be a seeker, a dislocated immigrant. There's no doubt that Merton was a master of brutal honesty and integration in terms of contemplation and action, social justice, and loneliness. He was a monastic theologian and Eastern religious scholar. While his journey began with the experience of God within and in the Western tradition, my journey started with a Catholic faith on Eastern soil. But it has been rough dance with Merton, in which he sometimes led and in other times I did. I admired Merton's spiritual journey, but I was heavily suspicious of his life and especially skeptical about his way of engaging with women. As a post-colonial thinker, I wondered about his whiteness. How could I read and understand his white privilege? Was it fair to judge him from a contemporary feminist perspective? Is it appropriate to think of him as someone who struggles with different cultures? Can his difficulty in adjusting to several European cultures be compared to an Asian or African uh, learning to survive in the U.S.? I confess that in the beginning, I critique, hated, analyze his life as shown in the layers of his writings. But as a human being, a fellow seeker, beyond any categories, I began to feel humbled before Merton's struggle to find his true self, including his effort to draw, study, write, his animas, and more importantly, Hagia Sophia. And paradoxically, I found my true self in this process of pondering his life by emphasizing Merton's Chinese-style name, Metong, means contemplative lamp. He has gained me in gaining my authentic voice as an Asian immigrant woman religious through a comparing, contrasting, a juxtaposing, and challenging, as well as a learning. For me, as an immigrant woman religious from the East, now residing in the West, Thomas Merton has been a moving signifier, an indicating finger to the emptiness, the mystery, who is the unknown. In my wandering journey to find God, Merton often emerged from the horizon in a very unexpected way to cross borders of cultures, geographic division, and religion. In this presentation, I will explain my dance with Martin regarding social justice, intimacy, and Eastern spirituality. These threes are all intersectional though. However, let me begin with his last comment on religious life. This May, I experienced the closing my university layup where I engaged with a student for 15 years through a teaching ministry. 
My religious institute aged and declined. Amid this aging process and mission completion, I am faced with Merton's question. What would you do without institutional religious life? I hear this question as being um, a shout in Jain Buddhism to induce an initial enlightenment experience in a student. If there was no more religious institute, properties, or structures of safety for pursuing religious life, then what would I do? In this era of uncertainty, I would like to keep this question as Merton's wisdom lamp. If religious life does not stand on institution or religious rule, even or constitution, then what actually is religious life? This question reminded me of Alice in the Wonderland who chased the rabbit and came upon a hole she enters filled with a curiosity. I think Martin's question is like a rough invitation to nudge me to run into the empty tomb or even the wonderland. For Martin, the evolution of Christianity and more specifically the religious life is to transcend the level of the symbolic, which is based on the rule in the name of the father and move into the level of the real in the spirit of contemplation. For this, I use the famous definition of contemplation, a long loving gaze at the real. In the US, many are now experiencing the closure of religious institutions. We are dying out. There are few new religious vocations. We feel threatened, scared, and may even consider our vocations a failure. Nonetheless, Burton's question reminded me of my unique calling by Jesus, who befriended me and all over the world, acknowledging the limit of the symbolic and to the journey in my odyssey to reach my home. No matter what the future holds, the religious is ontologically the person who stands in the presence of God alone. In this aloneness, we can be united with all the people. Merton's question invites me to extend my religious vocation into the unknown and to walk into two venues. One, to deepen my interior journey, refreshing my commitment to Jesus' movement of Galilee and the desert. The other, to go into the world even more as a sojourner and a stranger. Merton's writing, even at its most personal and confessional level, always dialogue with the world at large. Merton scholar Jonathan Montaldo uh, emphasized that the goal of Merton's conscious desires were becoming cosmopolitan. His true home where his authentic self felt welcomed was nowhere and everywhere. In this global world, my religious vocation spurs me to go deeper and broader. And in this way, Merton guides me to be endlessly a stranger, a foreigner, an immigrant. A sojourner, or in other words, at border crosser, 
is a person who deal with strangeness inside and outside one's soul. As we know, Merton himself was a border crosser, even in childhood. When his mother died, he went to France with his father and experienced alienation and felt unconnected to the French student at the school. After his father died, he moved to England and then U.S. again. We can imagine how his immigrant experience deeply impacted the young Merton. His deep yearning for home probably emerged from his early childhood. Before I came to U.S., I never thought of myself as an Asian. But now defined as an immigrant Asian woman, I feel honestly dislocated. But I have decided to continue my journey as a border crosser until I find my true home. As a sojourner to unknown spaces, I now live in a time of contemplation, or he called virgin point. Although every moment of life is a virgin point, it is a time of a blessing to discover our true nature of living in an in-betweenness in a borderland. The late Chicana feminist Gloria Anjaldua talked about borderlands in which one belonged neither to one nor the other. The existence of the borderland is always about being open to transform, transformation, a process, and with no room for judgment. Anjaldua indicates border crossers in two ways. One suggests a person who lives in the double ways of culture. In this global world of many diaspora communities, people live in two different cultures, and the in-betweenness extends into experiencing a third culture, a fourth culture, and so forth. However, more importantly, borderland signifies the interior and ontological state of the soul, which lies at the virgin point. Border crosses bear souls that are open to new possibilities and to finding a home on the journey. For Anjaldua, the home exists on the bridge between encounter the other. When I ponder this concept, I think of Martin, the border crosser who resided in borderland, a place which rejects stability and security. Merton used the term the virgin point, which referring to the in, innermost end of the ego where he encounters God and others. Thus the contemplation itself can signify a borderland and liminal space. In the borderland, also encounter God and word and the soul create the new meaning of self, others, and to being born in a transformed being together. This journey embraces water, animals, trees, and every ecological element. For Martin, the way of contemplation connects people, acknowledging that no man is an island. One of his most beautiful remarks on contemplation concerning the world in his book, Conjectures um, of Guilty Bystander, you mentioned, <laughs> it says, in Louisville, 
at the corner of the Force and Walnut in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we are total strangers. Once at a conference in Lowbell, I found myself standing at the very corner of the Force and Walnut looking for a Chinese restaurant, honestly. It is my habit to casually stroll along, look for Chinese restaurant. <laughs> At that intersection, I encountered a landmark where many people had placed ribbons in honor of Martin. His epiphany has reached broadly, and we are growing in our understanding of his insight that we are all one. Now, in that spirit, I will examine the second area of my presentation on social justice. Martin Heidegger explained the human being as a being of dialectical process who deal with nothingness designed in time and space. Martin's life and journey were located in his time and space. As a 20th century human being, his life, was located amid two world wars, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the civil rights movement. Also, it was time when U.S. emerged as a global superpower. And the world was divided between the Soviet Union and the U.S., allied with Western Europe. Now in the 21st century, we are living the tyranny of late capitalism, and as a consequence, the globalization and ecological crisis of a post-ideology era. At this juncture, I dream of social justice should be located in my own context in the 21st century. When I reflect on my spiritual journey, I think of social justice with a deep sense of a calling, but also a limitless sense of a failure. The tension between justice and love has made me restless throughout my life, yet I'm endlessly fascinated. At this point, I no longer dare dream an integration of this calling within my spiritual journey. Instead, I now understand living social justice as a learning process or a orientation of life. Nevertheless, I confess the process has often made me feel deeply frustrated, angry, and sad because the world does not seem to change as I want, of course. And also, I have often felt guilty for not doing enough because the idea of a social justice always pushes me to go further. It is like a, or the feeling of running toward the moon it is never as close as it may appear. In Martin's pursuit of social justice, he provides a good balanced model for Christian definition. As John Deere describes, Martin embodied a creative spiritual life for justice and peace, one that was different from social activism. His spirituality dealt with the inner dimension of a faith seeker with the outer world simultaneously. I believe that 
Merton's peacemaking emerged from contemplative prayer, which broadened awareness that we are all interconnected and one in God's love. My own sense of social justice emerged from political turmoil in South Korea. As a Catholic, I was baptized into liberation theology in the 1980s. Liberation theology, which emerged, emphasized a concern for the oppressed and the poor, uh, emerged in the Korean context from theologians, university students, and laborers as Minjung theology. During political repression, the Catholic Korean Church's political struggle for justice against a dictatorship became the moral guide for Korean society. The idea of Minjung theology encompassed my Catholic pride, fed my hunger for spirituality in the midst of the struggle for freedom. However, the milieu was highly violent. And I didn't know how to handle my fear of arrest and torture. Yet my anger toward the societal injustice, as well as my own cowardly self, was huge. Later, we would call this mentality survivor's guilt. I always felt shame that I owed my freedom to many brilliant young people who were killed, beaten, or had disappeared. As such, I always felt that I was not enough, and I became drawn to situations of injustice everywhere. And because I could not constantly live as a revolutionary, I endured the kind of suffering. Through my study of Jacques Lacan's psychoanalysis, I'm now capable of addressing my conflicted feelings toward social justice, which has teased me throughout my religious life. Once I was, once I was just a revolutionary for justice, and I would not have thought of social justice in all different ways. Then I noticed that my understanding of social justice was very limited, so I ignored my own path of social justice and spirituality. Perhaps my neurosis toward social justice was God's way to luring me into the path of social justice. Burton's writing on justice affirmed for me that I had indeed been walking the path of justice and love. If I summarize Merton's spirituality of social justice, which has greatly consoled me, I would say the following. First, personalism, not individualism. It does not mean a full level of freedom that a person enjoys, but rather a competency to make conscientious decisions and take responsibility for them. I believe personalism involves conscientious disobedience and a discernment process based on self-knowledge with humility. We can do only what we can do with the gift and dispositions given by God. And we need to listen to God to discern um, our level of involvement. Second, thoughtful kindness to others. Burton emphasized that the spirituality of nonviolence in peace lies in significance of insignificant things and insignificant moments. 
In this way, social justice and peace became a heartening duty. I do not have to be a superhero dying for others or completely subverting wrongs or unjust structures. Instead, be willing and be available to be kind to seemingly insignificant people and moment. Heroism in social justice is another ego's kind of compulsiveness. I also believe kindness brings peace to me on insignificant being. I'm delightful to myself, insignificant. Last but not least, Merton's social justice linked to joy and a sense of humor. Let me share a prayer of another Thomas, that of Thomas More. Grant me, O Lord, a sense of good humor. Allow me the grace to be able to take a joke, to discover in life a bit of joy, and to be able to share it with others. I think this prayer grasps the sense of humor that Merton emphasizes. The reason why we can remain light in front of a reality where evil seems to win is that we trust God. Jim Forrest beautifully explains Merton's social justice spirituality as a lightness that comes from a severe faith and deep trust in God. Humor stands on the ground that reveals the current injustice situation and fools oneself into admitting one's limit and powerlessness in humility. As Merton suggests, we live in a broken world, we follow as the broken bread, and we expect a new heaven and earth along with all the crying creatures. I believe Merton's three-part social justice spirituality, personalism based on conscientious obedience or disobedience, kindness inside and out, and a sense of humor, all three are linked to apocalyptic hope. In this sense, we can claim social justice as a landmark of our journey. Then finally, I can laugh at myself as someone who is drawn to social justice without success and all, always begin again my next step toward the calling to social justice. Next, let me talk about intimacy. We all know the human sexuality determines how to perceive oneself, others, and God. As a celibate, the vow of chastity and sexuality is a somewhat difficult topic to integrate. When I began my religious life, the, the vow of chastity seems easy one. <laughs> but later I found it to be a challenging and mysterious lifelong commitment. Although we know that intimacy is important, but there's no specific method or guideline of doing intimacy. Merton's journey into wholeness has challenged my feminist self, and yet it has also consoled me through the struggles with my sexuality in my celibate life, and it has mirrored me as I live into my own blind spots. As a religious woman, Intimacy means a commitment to love myself, others, and God. Our church father origin called God as Eros, a connecting energy. While I was writing my book, 
a journey to the east, a journey to the west, you introduced. Um, and meditating on the theme of intimacy, I read Merton as neither a genius writer or, nor a great monk, but rather as a sincerely honest human being who desired to find his true self and was open to the love that filled his life. The question of what love means repeatedly appears in his journals during his 40s and 50s. I honestly appreciate his brutally honest and scandalous journals. When we pay attention to Merton's drawings during his college years, we find that he was deeply fascinated by the pre primavera, the Jungian term for raw emotion or experience expressed as the sensual energy of women's bodies. His drawings show a spirit of vivace and fun. It seems that in his 40s, he began to explore the feminine energy in himself. In my own journey, I also desire to understand and see hidden parts in me of the masculine prototype. For Merton, who lost his mother at an early age, he must have yearned for the feminine aspect of his own being, open blindly project onto others as a desirable one. For that, Jacques Lacan called it object buddhi ah. After seriously searching for unknown femininity in him, he explained his four animals, the Hagia Sophia, the Chinese princess, the Jewish proverb, and Southern black wet nurse. These are all feminine aspects of Christ or wisdom. Merton integrated his masculine image of God or Christ, the Logos, with Hagia Sophia. Of course, in his lifetime, dominant representation of God was masculine, Yet, Merton surprisingly encountered the feminine Christ. For Merton, the Hagia Sophia sometimes meant the Virgin Mary, Sister Wisdom, or another sacred femininity. The Chinese presence could have been the feminine side of the Buddha or Tao. Interestingly, in my Asian mind, Tao is not often represented as a feminine, although the nature is very feminine. In pondering Merton's Chinese princess, I recognize that my own barrier, my own cultural barrier to understand Taoism. As a feminist scholar in the beginning, I was delighted to read Merton's discovery of the feminine Christ, a subtle, invisible fecundity, namelessness, hidden wholeness, gentleness, and so on. <laughs> Then I become skeptical about whether this description of itself reinforces gender division. Contemporary understandings of gender as a fluid social construct gave me caution. Nevertheless, if we dance with the text, we can see it as a dialectical process for finding a hidden aspect of the soul, which lies on the symbolic determined by society culture, and more specifically, language. His soul-searching can be a case exemplar. Psychoanalysis Jacques Lacan argued that human sexuality is a position, not a fixed place. For a soul, 
which in navigate the unknown sex in the soul is taking a feminine position while not remaining in the dualistic and the moiety of gender. The fixed position can be called position of male. The flex, flexible and seeking alternative view is called the position of the female. Again, this division is not necessarily biological. Rather, it is a spiritual, punctuated as against social and cultural norm. Merton's anima of Chinese princess represent, represents joyful, useful creativity. When Merton fell in love with a very young woman, he described her as Hagia Sophia, and writer Robert Waldron connect Chinese presence with a young woman, M. While this is plausible, I lean toward Chinese princess being his own lost youth. Lonely and open alone, he might have had a joyful youth residing deep in his heart and probably M triggered him. His fourth anima, the black mother, a large, southern African-American wet nurse who tried to discipline him, is a very interesting complex figure. Merton lived in the South, where whites mistreated the blacks' health. His black mother was harsh, but at the same time, she gave him a sense of comfort and love. This figure reminds me of Bajra Yogini, the feminine Buddha nature. In Tibetan Buddhism, Vajra Yogini, as an old woman, appears to young male monk who maintain a strict diet to tempt them with a piece of meat. Vajra Yogini invites them to break rule and experience liberation from narrow understanding and from blindly following rules and from being stuck in the symbolic. In our world, we still struggle with the systemic racism such that it recently instigated the Black Lives Matter movement. The Southern Black Mama manifests a paradoxical nature. On the one hand, she harshly disciplined the white children she cares for. On the other hand, she wrecks power in American society as a Black woman. Perhaps we too have a very complicated and paradoxical being in our own soul. In my 40s, I began to embrace myself as a middle-aged woman on a conscious level, fine. But then the reality of reaching my 50s hit me somewhat suddenly and unexpectedly. The second of my life began with an inner voice when I woke up on the day of my final vows. The voice said, you will die soon. <laughs> I was shocked at the voice with my eyes still feel closed and pondered what it meant. I wondered if my final vows I was making that day meant I was dying for Jesus Christ. Hmm. But I had no interest in hearing such a message. So I revised the sentence 
say to back to my soul, okay, I will die sooner or later. I needed some more time because I was not ready to, to die totally, no matter what it meant. Then through that year, I collected many dreams that delivered the same message. One day, finally, in my journal, I wrote, Okay, my youth is dead. My second life is beginning. I felt need to hold on this feeling, although I could not fully address it. That year on Good Friday, I had another dream. I was delivering a baby. The whole womb was damaged, deeply hurt, like the body of Jesus Christ, whom I touched during the liturgy. The baby was a white man whose head was huge, but body was tiny, and I hated his big face. Oh, when I woke up, I realized that he was my animus, who looked overly confident, snobbish, not sensitive to others, not attractive at all. Then another dream came on Easter Sunday morning. In it, a doctor said to me, you are in the final stage of a breast cancer. I felt terrified and drove to Holy Names University. In the parking lot, I saw a crying freshman who looked like a very first African student. I embraced him, feeling great intimacy with them. And I, I said to him, don't worry, I can help you. Let's go to my office. Then I woke up. This beautiful young man was my second animus. I loved him more than the snobbish, arrogant, middle-aged white man. Allah, they are all in my soul anyway. However, I feel my inner psychosexual dynamics moving back and forth in my aging body. Hello. Morton's interior journey to his anima directed him to live a new way of engaging with the world and it led him to go east. In my journey through the land of Morton's journey, I'm also finding new avenues. So if you ask me whether I have found my home, I thought, I, you know, when I finished this book, I thought I did. But if you ask me now, my answer is no. However, I feel very confident that I cannot ever reach that goal. Home is a space we are supposed to move toward, not to destined to reach. So, you know, Sophia comes forth not reaching home. I'm confident that Martin saw the exterior journey as a mirror to reveal his interior journey. In terms of geography, he went to the east as an unknown territory. I came to the west as a space of the other. Different language cultures can shake one's soul. To be a foreigner invites one to be a child again. Because I came to U.S., I did not know that I'm an Asian, nor did I know its cultural connotations, such as being nice, not showing temper, being shy, or slightly sexy. No, I'm sorry, I'm not. 
The first place where I felt seriously encountered Eastern spiritual, spirituality was, ironically, in the West. As an Asian student who studied theology, I found that I did not know Eastern religion. Nevertheless, finding myself reading books on Eastern religion and philosophy written by great Western scholars did not exactly feel okay. Their experience and scholarship were their interpretations. And yet I felt nervous. Do I know the East? Do they know the East? And further, what is the East? My desire to know Eastern spirituality, supposedly my home spirituality, began to slowly grow. At this juncture, I discovered Thomas Merton as a gentle, meditative student. He explored spirituality of major Asian religions, but his approach remained firmly grounded in his Catholic faith. Whenever I felt overwhelmed while studying Eastern spirituality, I found that Merton's joyful examinations of Asian spirituality consoled me. Just as he told his friends before his trip to Asia, our real journey in life is interior. I feel our every journey in life is interior or an expression of interior journey. My journey was twofold. One path was to explore my deep-seated Eastern spirituality. The other was to explore, examine Western Christian spirituality or living. Ironically, my most beautiful journey was examining Eastern religions in the West where there's no more freedom to study without worrying about not being so Catholic. In my search for my own spiritual home in the West, Merton's insightful dream offered me a strong foundation. Merton beautifully describes his dream about Kankenjuanga, the snow mountain. He says, I was looking at the mountain. It was a pure white, absolutely pristine, especially the peaks that lie to the west. I saw the pure beauty of their shape and outline all in white. And I heard a voice saying, or get the clear idea of, there is another side of the mountain. I realized that it was turned around and everything was lined up differently. I was seeing it from the Tibetan side. My entry to interior journey to Eastern religion began at Seattle University in one of the required courses of Christian spirituality. At the time, a young man named Mark worked in the cafeteria on campus. He told me that he had lived as a Buddhist monk in Japan and shared with me one of his experiences from those days. In one meditation, he encountered Buddha and noticed that the Buddha's face was, in fact, that of Jesus. After that experience, he left the monastery and returned to the U.S. That conversation with Mark was an epiphany for me. 
My process of studying Buddhism would begin to differ from that of my American classmates. When I translated what I, what I learned in the Buddhism class into my own cultural resources, I began to remember many bedtime stories that I heard from my grandma, the stories that always carry the wisdom of Buddhism in daily life. The next station on this journey was Taoism, and Merton's writing offered a gentle access to reading and interpreting them. I was so excited when I found that John Wu, my favorite, favorite author, was the one who had introduced Taoism to Merton. He's absolutely the best person to explain the Tao. Of course, when I read Merton, especially the, the way of Zhangju, it was evident when I realized who I was becoming as to why I felt drawn to Merton. No doubt, you know the famous story of chaos, right? In the inner chapter of Zhangju, the king of the south and king of the north visit the king of chaos, who offers them a very heartfelt hospitality. The two guests find that mm, the chaos is ugly and with too many holes in his face. So they decided to fill the horse plastic surgery as a repayment. But as soon as they do, the king chaos died. Merton translates the word chaos as the in-between or no form. In this way, he emphasized the power of chaos rather than the cosmos. Merton's choice of the word is fascinating because the in-between is also a term for the borderland. I claim to reside in which follows flows like a water or Tao. The term indicates a liminal space or border crossing, a creation of new identities through encounters. In today's multicultural society, many people claim a hybrid identity with many holes, as it were. My next journey was shamanism, which in Korea was taboo. Yet, an appreciated women-centered Korean indigenous spiritual practice. This journey affirmed my spiritual roots as a shaman and a wounded healer and gave me the courage to return to Korea to befriend shamans and learn from them as a novice shaman. I continued my journey and next faced Confucianism, which had long been against women. I was furious about this practice, but when I studied it more and more, I recognized that the texts themselves talk about humanity and harmony, not misogyny. I was surprised by its emphasis on education and piety toward parents, something which appealed strongly to my Latinx students. Their appreciation of Confucianism humbled me. Very often I asked, which religious practice is most appealing to you? Shamanism? Taoism? No, Confucianism. Oh. My interior journey toward a much different spirituality still nudged me forward to continue my journey. Merton, the contemplative lamp, seems to stand still. 
Just as Merton left for the east for the east to meet his anima, the Chinese princess, I continue my journey in search of my young animus in Africa. Through deep and sincere friendships and the spirit of Ubuntu, Merton continued his spiritual odyssey. I too, holding the hands of my global friends, continue my journey, carrying Merton, Matong, the lamp of contemplation and meditation. Thank you for your attention. My final words are these. Thank you, Thomas Merton, for your honesty, talent, and struggle. Thank you for being a border crosser residing in a borderland. Thank you for nudging me not to cling to a fixed identity, but to accept and be open to new coming reality, to God, the mystery at every moment. Now, after completing my mission at Holy Names University, just before jumping into the new calling, as a dreamer of a global mission in friendship, as a border crosser, I will close my presentation with Merton's famous prayer. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't know why I'm so emotional. Sorry about that. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will, nor I really know myself, and the fact that I am following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire. Where's my last page? Oh my God. <laughs> um, I, I hope that I have desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road through I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always though? I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. Thank you so much.